One of my favorite invitations in all of Scripture. It really <laughs> it brings so much joy to my heart. It's in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. And Jesus invites us in this way. He says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Back then, each rabbi had kind of a set of teachings that they lived by. That set of teachings was called a yoke, kind of a euphemistic way of saying this is the rule, the the rubric by which this rabbi lives. And Jesus, our capital R rabbi, says his yoke, his set of rules are easy and the burden is light. So when we come to him and take his yoke upon us, we find rest for our souls. As your pastor, And as your friend, if I could give you anything, it'd be rest. Not physical rest, although so many of us need it, don't we? Not emotional rest, although again, so many of us need it. But I would give you the gift that Jesus is inviting us to here, and that is spiritual rest. Spiritual rest. Because frankly, I believe that our whole being in the world flows from our spiritual side. So when we find spiritual rest, oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes, many times, that equates to physical rest and emotional rest as well. And while I would want to give you the gift of rest, unfortunately, we live in a hurried world, don't we? There's a grocery store by my house, a Zares actually, where um, that's kind of where I would typically go to do grocery shopping. Amy does most of it, but uh, when I go, that's where I go to Zares. And like many grocery stores right now, you know, they have that single line up one of the long aisles that everybody waits in, physical distancing, stickers on the floor, all that stuff. And then when you get to the front of the line, an attendant tells you which checkout register that you should go to. I hate this system. Not because I don't want to be told what to do, that's totally fine, but because I have a very complicated and sophisticated system for determining which one of those checkout lines is going to be fastest. You may have the same thing. You know, you start to calculate how many items does that person have? Do they have a cart or do they have a basket? Did I watch that woman in aisle seven going red beans or black beans, red beans or black beans? God knows she's going to have extra seven things that she needs to go get that she forgot in her cart and it's going to take a little while longer. Or that guy there is not going to be able to figure out a way to pay. When I know I can look at somebody and they're zipping through the line and they're unloading their stuff and they're going to pay by tap praise Jesus. That's the line I want to be in. Why? Because I want to get out of there. Because we live in a hurried world. We live in a world of fast food and instant credit, minute rice. We need it 
now. We want it now. And unfortunately, that hurried, frenzied tyranny of the urgent pace has crept in to our spiritual life and our spiritual outlook as well. And it's resulted in what I would call the religion of good personism. The religion of good personism. Here's how it works. I look back at my life and I think, if the good things I've done outweigh the bad, then I will go to the good place and not the bad place. So, you know, I, I kind of weigh the scales and no one ever weighs themselves fairly. You know what I mean? I kind of weigh the scales. The good things I've done outweigh the bad. So I need to be careful at all times to be hurried toward, you know, weighing one of those sides heavier than the other. Or here's another way to say it. The religion of good personism works this way. I set a moral bar. This is good enough. And some people's moral bar is here, and some people's moral bar is here, and some people's moral bar is here. But regardless of where you kind of put that bar, there's always a striving to live up to that moral expectation in order to get to heaven when you die. It's kind of what people think. Uh, or uh, better, better said, maybe even please God. Uh, there's a, a bunch of churches, one in particular called North Point in Atlanta Church, that has done a lot of surveys that have found if you just ask the normal person on the street how it is that you get to heaven when you die, the typical answer that you get is that you obey the Ten Commandments. That's how you get to heaven when you die, obey the Ten Commandments. Many of those people can't name the Ten Commandments, by the way. Let, let's take it outside, though, the Judeo-Christian kind of mindset. Uh, most world religions have a good personism kind of built into the fabric of what they are. The LDS Church actually has a, a verse in their scripture that says, For it is by grace we have been saved after all our works are done. Seriously. Uh, some major world religions have pilgrimages that you need to take and things that you need to do and a moral code that you have to live up to. And that's not just some, it's most, the vast majority. In fact, there's a story about C.S. Lewis uh, when he was working at Oxford and a group of folks were, a group of professors were arguing over what makes Christianity different. What is it that sets it apart from other world religions? And these weren't just Christian professors, although C.S. Lewis was a Christian professor and a prominent Christian thinker. These were atheist professors and Buddhist professors and agnostic professors and professors from all different religious backgrounds. And they couldn't come to a conclusion as to what made Christianity different, what set it apart. And the story goes this way, that C.S. Lewis walked into the room, they included him on the conversation, and his response was, it's simple. It's one word. Grace. The unmerited and undeserved favor of God. Such that we have the opportunity to rest from our strivings. We have the invitation to come to Jesus and put on a light yoke and an easy burden. We have the invitation to enjoy and, and 
bathe in the unmerited, undeserved, unconditional, never stopping, never giving up favor of God bestowed on us for no other reason than His great grace. And that grace produces rest. I'd love to give you that gift today. And in order to do that, we're going to spend a little bit of time in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4, the end of 3, the beginning of 4, in order to talk about rest. We're going to learn what it means and hopefully accept God's invitation to rest. If you have your Bibles, I would love for you to open them with me to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. It's said that the, gospel, or that the book of Romans is kind of the explanation of the gospel to the Gentile world. The book of Hebrews is the explanation of the gospel to the Jewish world. So as we journey through this uh, series called Foundations and we talk about the ways in which Jesus is a fulfillment of these Old Testament motifs, we keep coming back to Hebrews over and over again because the author of Hebrews talks about all these motifs, the tabernacle, the temple, Moses, Melchizedek, Abraham, and now this notion of rest. We're going to read kind of an extended portion of scripture here, and there will probably be places in there where you're going, what in the world does that mean? That's okay. Don't panic. We'll explain. So let's jump in. Hebrews chapter 3. We'll pick it up in verse 12. The author of Hebrews writes this, see to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Verse 14, we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold to our original conviction firmly to the very end. As has just been said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they that heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Therefore, this is chapter 4, verse 1, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you have found to be fallen short of it. For we have also had the good news proclaimed to us, just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value because they did not share in the faith of those who obeyed. Now we who have believed enter that rest, just as God said, So I declared my oath in anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet his works have been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. On the seventh day, God rested from all his works. And again in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God set a certain day, calling it today. This he did when a long time later he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about it another day. 
There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. Did you get it? <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on there. Okay, first of all, we're going to walk through the passage. We're going to talk about it generally. We're going to talk about it specifically. You will understand it. But before we go any further, a first century Hebrew reader or listener of this text would have got it that quick. Why? Because they were familiar with all these events and motifs. And so as the author of Hebrews begins to weave those motifs in and out of one another, and you're almost not sure where which one starts and the other one ends, and he quotes the same verse from Psalm 95 twice, and he's going all over the place, the first century Hebrew reader would have tracked with him without a problem. It's just that we don't have the general context and even if we do have the general context, it's not ingrained in who we are. This is why we're doing this series called Foundations, so that we can understand the background story that Jesus enters into in terms of the new covenant. So let's talk about this passage. I just read 19 verses, and there is one word repeated 11 times. What's that one word? Rest. So this passage is all about, not a trick question, rest, right. And the author uses three Old Testament motifs and then kind of one additional eschatological motif, we'll talk about that in a minute, three Old Testament motifs to help us kind of construct a picture, if you will, of the rest that God is inviting us to. We'll take them in order that the author mentions these motifs. First, he talks about the land of rest that God's people were promised. The author mentions this land of rest in chapter 3, verse 18, chapter 4, verse 5, and verse 8. Here's what the author is talking about. Last time we left our nation of Israel, they had been freed from slavery in Egypt, crossed the Red Sea, come to Mount Sinai, and they were given the tablets of stone and the covenant, and they constructed a tabernacle. They were also promised a land flowing with milk and honey. This was the land of Canaan. This was the land promised to Abraham long before Moses and Joseph and whatever even showed up. This was God's Abrahamic covenant. This was the land that they were to possess, and it was to be a land of rest. From Egypt to the promised land, walking at a decent pace, should have taken them about 11 days. About 11 days. Some of you know how long it took them. 40 years. 40 years it took them to journey from Egypt to the promised land. Why? Because the people start to grumble against God. The people start to reject God. The people begin to disobey God. And the consequences of that disobedience was that Moses and his whole generation would die off before the nation of Israel entered into this land of rest. Joshua, Moses' successor, would end up leading them into this land of rest. And so my second question would be simply this. 
if the people disobeyed, what is it that they did wrong that earned them this consequence of not being entered, not entering into the land that was promised to them? And this is a very critical question. So pay very close attention to these four, these three verses. Okay, what is it that they did wrong? Chapter three, verse nineteen. We see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Chapter 4, verse 2. We've also had the good news proclaimed to us just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value because they did not share in the faith of those who obeyed. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 3. Now we who have believed entered that rest. the contrary would be, the contrast would be, those who have not believed did not enter that rest. So here's this first Old Testament motif of rest. It's God's extension of an invitation to his people to enter a physical land of rest that he promised to Abraham. But there was a generation who was not able to enter that rest. And did you hear it? Three different times unbelief, lack of faith, lack of trust in God. Men and women, it is so critical that we file this away as we look towards what it means to experience rest as a Christian. It was not because they grumbled against God. It was not because they fought among one another. It was not because they didn't do enough worshiping and they didn't go to the tabernacle enough or they didn't pray enough or they didn't sacrifice enough. It was none of that. The only thing that prevented them from entering God's promised rest was that they didn't trust Him. They lacked faith. They didn't believe. So critical. So that's the first Old Testament motif of rest that the author of Hebrews is offering to us as we begin to piece this puzzle together to understand rest in general. Here's the second rest that the author of Hebrews offers to us. Chapter 4, verse 4. For somewhere he has spoken. That's so funny to me, by the way. This isn't like, you know, free for nothing today. But um, when it came to Old Testament scrolls, they were kind of not cobbled together, but but there was all kinds of different, you know, copies of the Old Testament, all accurate and consistent and all that stuff. But there wasn't like, you know, Genesis chapter one, verse nine or whatever back then. And so the author of Hebrews says, verse four, for somewhere he has spoken about. In other words, you all know this. You've all read this before. I, I'm not going to tell you chapter and verse because there was no chapter and verse, but you all know what I'm talking about. I think it's really funny. Okay. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. And when he says he has spoken, that's God has spoken about the seventh day in these words. On the seventh day, God rested from all his works. Verse 10. For anyone who enters God's rests, rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Okay, so motif number one is the nation of Israel was invited into a land of rest and did not a generation did not inherit it because of their unbelief. Motif number two is that God rested from his works. I think it's kind of funny uh, when we think about this notion of rest, we think about, at least I do, 
uh, like being on a recliner, being on a lazy boy. I don't know why, but I love recliners so much. I love them. And I want one of those nice like Cadillac recliners with like the massage thing on the back and the cooler underneath and all that stuff. And I just think about watching college football all day in my basement and just resting. This is not what the Bible is talking about when it says God rested from his works. There's not a, a heavenly lazy boy that God is, well, he does watch college football, but that's my own personal opinion, but there's not a heavenly lazy boy that he's resting on. Uh, there's a theologian named John Walton, talks a little bit about this rest. Listen to what John Walton says. The concept of divine rest can, in turn, be elucidated by ancient Near Eastern literature, which demonstrates that the deity's rest is achieved in a temple, generally as a result of having order been established. The rest, while it represents disengagement from the process of establishing order, is more importantly an expression of engagement as the deity takes his place at the helm to maintain an ordered, secure, and stable cosmos. In other words, huh? What? What did I just read? What does that mean? Okay, here's what John Walton is saying. It's not as if God created the world in those six days and put everything in place and finished with the crown jewel of his creation, mankind, and then sat down in a lazy boy. Rather, it's as if God is a cook that's prepared a wonderful meal and now he's sat down to enjoy the fruits of his labor. Do you see the difference? You see the difference? It, it does mean disengagement from the process of establishing order, as John Walton indicates, but it means that God steps back and says, ah, it is good, and now he's free and at rest in order to enjoy what he has created. That's motif number two. Motif number three. This is verse eight, Hebrews four. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. A Sabbath rest for God's people is motif number three, a Sabbath rest. Well, what is the Sabbath? Well, here's the deal. Once the nation of Israel was redeemed from slavery, brought out of slavery in Egypt and gathered at Mount Sinai to receive the law, God gives them the law summarized by 10 commandments, but there were about 600 more that had to do with ceremonial cleansing and how to eat and how to relate to one another and property ownership and all different kinds of stuff. And it's so funny to me that a lot of people look at this Old Testament law and they think, this is God's rules. This is his rules. No. It was an extension of his grace. Why? Because these people had been ruled by an autocratic, dictatorial, violent government for 430 years. They were not a nation. Yes, they were a people. Yes, they were related by blood, but they had no legislation to help them govern themselves, to help them survive. And so God is an extension of his grace produces this gracious law for them to help them interact with one another. It's kind of like the law in Canada, you know, wear a mask when you go inside. Right. It helps us treat one another better. It helps us survive as a culture and as a people. That is not something the government's trying to do to be heavy handed. 
It's something the government's doing to help us stay safe. Same thing as God, and yet God is perfect. The Canadian government, unfortunately, is not, nor is any other earthly government. So God's law was perfect, and it was an extension of his grace. So it wasn't a heavy burden that, that set heavy on the shoulders of the nation of Israel. Rather, it was like a breath of fresh air. It was like a cup of cold water on a hot day. It was an expression of his grace. And one of those Ten Commandments shows up in Exodus chapter 20, verse 8. He says, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. He says, six days you shall labor and do all of your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. Neither you, your son or your daughter, your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the seas, all that's in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. That's motif number three, that God will provide seven days of sustenance in six days. God will provide seven days of need in six days so you can take that last day off and rest from all your works. Not only that, God himself modeled that for us by resting on the seventh day. So there's our three motifs that the author is weaving together to help us understand this concept and notion of rest. Finally, there's one more mention of what I called an eschatological rest. That is to say, a future rest. You may have heard it uh, just a minute ago, although we talked about Sabbath, the Sabbath day. The author of Hebrews says it this way, There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. In other words, there is a more rest coming. There remains another aspect of this, another part of this, another experience of God's rest in the future. So here we have our biblical concept of rest. We have a first century Hebrew understanding or an Old Testament picture the nation of Israel and the land of rest that was promised, they did not inherit because of their unbelief. God's resting from his work on the seventh day, stepping back to enjoy what had been created. And finally, the Sabbath rest, that seventh day of rest that God commanded as an act of his grace. So if you've been with us, for the last number of weeks, you know the question that's coming, don't you? What in the world does this have to do with Jesus? What in the world does this have to do with Jesus? Okay, for the New Covenant believer, 2020, this is what it has to do with Jesus. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 10 sums it up. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Brothers and sisters in Christ, listen very closely to the words of Scripture. Anyone 
who enters God's rest also rests from their works. I mean, the author of Hebrews is saying so much in that just one little snippet. First of all, we do not work to attain rest. Once we do enough good things, we can finally go, ah, the good outweighs the bad. I've lived up to that moral code. Most of our moral codes float around a little bit, by the way. And so now I can finally rest because I've done everything I need to do to earn my way into heaven, to earn my way into God's good favor or whatever. And frankly, this is an insidious notion. I mean, most of us don't even know that we're doing it, but we do all the time. I mean, it creeps into our concepts of, you know, do I, do, am I praying? Am I reading the Bible? Am I doing enough good for the people around me? Am I being nice? Am I being kind? Am I giving, you know, financially to causes? Am I serving at a soup kitchen? Am I smiling at my friends? Am I listening? Am I being patient with my kids? Whatever. And we judge ourselves and say, did I do more good today than bad? Did I live up to that moral standard? And once I do, I can rest. God says, no, you can never rest. You can never rest if that's what you're after. Rather, Hebrews 4 chapter 10, or Hebrews chapter 4 verse 10 says, anyone who enters God's rest. Aha, so here's the trick now. It's not you do enough so that you could rest. It's that God has already done it. The rest is his. He owns it. He holds it. He paid for it through Jesus. Jesus met that moral standard. Jesus lived up to that moral code. Jesus' line was way up here and never moved. It was perfect. It was holy. Jesus, on the good and bad scale, there was only good and no bad. He fulfilled all the law and the prophets and gave his life for you and for me as a substitute. And so now, rather than us working to obtain rest, God has already obtained it. That's why that word there is possessive for anyone who enters God's rest. He purchased rest for himself. Now he extends it as a gift to you and me. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works. You can breathe. You can exhale. You can stop striving. What joy this truth brings when it saturates our heart and soul. God is inviting us to enter in to his rest. God is inviting us to enter in to his rest. This invitation is all about grace. So what do we learn from those three Old Testament motifs that the author of Hebrews used to help us understand rest? Well, first, we understand how it is that I accept that invitation. How do I enter God's rest? Okay, so in contrast to the nation of Israel, what did they do 
that prevented them from entering God's rest. What did they do? Lack of belief, remember? Lack of trust, lack of faith. This is why the reformers in the 16th century would say sola fide, faith alone, grace alone. This is the only way you enter God's rest. And the only thing that would prevent you from entering God's rest is not placing your trust in God. This is why the author of Hebrews in chapter 4, verse 1, we read it a minute ago, said, let us be careful. Let us be careful that we don't fall into disobedience or lack of trust in God. But it's not disobedience as in, again, I stole something, I messed up, I had a bad thought, I acted out on my kids. That's not it. The one piece of disobedience that God is talking about here is a lack of trust. And it's interesting because that let us be careful probably doesn't do the word justice. It says be fearful. Be fearful that you don't enter God's rest. In other words, I fear God far more than I fear anything on this planet. And even that, even that, my friends, is an act of His grace. And because I fear Him, I trust Him. Let me explain it to you. I grilled last night. I grilled chicken and I grilled, what else did I grill? I grilled vegetables. Ooh. I grilled corn. It was very good. And my son, Canaan, who turns two in just a few weeks, was outside with me. And I'm grilling and I'm doing the thing. We're kind of hanging and playing. And Canaan approaches my grill and he's about to touch it. And what did I do? I got his attention, didn't I? And I even scared him a little bit. And would you say that if I said to Canaan, oh, go ahead and touch it, bud. (laughs) Go ahead and touch that grill. It's not a big deal. Would you say that was a gracious thing to do? No, no. There's a a level of fear, healthy fear, that he has for me and he responds to me more than he responds to his circumstances around me. Why? Because he trusts me, that I have his best in mind, that I love him. There's nothing he can do to make me love him less. Nothing he can do to make him love me more. And in fact, if one of us had to touch the grill a hundred times out of a hundred, I would be the one to do it and take the pain away from him. This is what God has done for you. He sent his son on your behalf. He touched the grill so you didn't have to, right? And he says, listen to me. And he gets our attention. He says, don't miss out on entering my rest. And all you have to do is trust me. That's how we enter into the rest of God. Through faith and faith alone. Just trusting. Number two, what does that rest bring me? Well, just as God rested from his works... We also rest from ours. And remember what we said about God. He didn't sit down in a lazy boy and watch college football and take a nap in the afternoon. That's not what rest meant. What it meant was he stepped back and enjoyed that which had been created. In the same way, the the rest that God offers us brings us joy. It does not bring us apathy. It does not bring us sitting around and doing nothing. It doesn't bring us disobedience. It doesn't bring us anything. It simply brings us a joy in our hearts that God has extended grace and rest 
to us. We, just as God, experience joy in His rest, experience joy in the rest that comes only through His grace. And finally, what can I expect? What can I expect if I enter into this rest through faith, experiencing joy? What can I expect? I can expect God's provision. Just as God provided seven days worth of food uh, and, and, and sustenance over six days so that the nation of Israel could take a Sabbath rest, He over provides for you too. He gives you each and everything that you need. And it's simply an act of His grace, a favor that we did not earn. He extends to us grace upon grace upon grace. So how do I enter? Through faith. What does it bring me? Joy. And what can I expect as a result? That God will over-provide for all my needs in Christ Jesus. I start to think about how difficult it is to experience unmerited favor, to accept grace. It's challenging for us. I mean, we want to have some level of control. We want to think that we did something to earn it. Or we get kind of bogged down in I'm a horrible person and there's no way anyone could do anything for me. It reminds me of a parable that uh, Luke, or that, that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 18 of two men who are in the temple praying. One is a tax collector. He's just a despicable, dishonorable wretch of a man. And there's a Pharisee in the room too who is equally despicable, dishonorable, and wretched for two different reasons. The tax collector is a thief and a traitor, and the Pharisee is a self-righteous, hyper-religious self-dependent so-and-so, let's put it that way. And the two men are in the temple praying, and the tax collector prays humbly, oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And the Pharisee, the religious leader, prays, oh God, thank you that I'm not as awful as that guy. And the reality is both of them are having a difficult time accepting grace and thus entering into the rest of God. Why? The Pharisee thinks, or at least wants to think, he did something to earn it or deserve it. He's self-righteous. He's, he's relying upon himself. He's playing the game of uh, the religion of good personism. In fact, of those 600 laws that we talked about that God gave his people in the Old Testament, the Pharisees themselves had added something like 900 more. There were 39 different things that they had to do each and every Sabbath and ceremonial hand washing and all these different things. And they became haughty and proud in their religiosity, thus not accepting grace and never resting, always striving, thinking they were seated with God at the table when all the while they weren't. And then those who are kind of despicable, wretched, at least see themselves as such, have a difficult time accepting grace and resting in what God offers. The reality is none of us deserve grace. None of us deserve grace. 
but God extends it anyway. I want to close with this, and and then I want to read you um, that invitation that I started with one more time. But every time I think of the grace of God and the rest that He offers, the opportunity to cease from our works, the knowledge, not just head knowledge, but heart knowledge, that He lavishes His grace upon us and offers an invitation into rest. Every time I think about it, I think about my kids. They are my joy. There is nothing they could ever do to make me love them more. There's nothing they could ever do to make me love them less. I bless Canaan every night with the same thing and begins this way. Canaan, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. I tell Kaya the same thing every night. Nothing you could do to make me love you more. Nothing you could do to make me love you less. I love you just because you're my daughter. Men and women of God, if I could give you one gift, it would, it would be that you would hear and know and experience the heart of God for you, namely the fatherly heart of God for you. You don't have to impress him. You don't have to strive. And if you think you're doing enough, you're not. In fact, that's self-righteousness. And if you think you're not doing nearly enough, God says, yep, you're not doing nearly enough. But all of that is an aside. It's, it's garbage, Paul would say, or it's filthy rags, the Old Testament say. All of our striving, all of our righteousness. God says, I love you because you're my creation in my image. And nothing will ever change that. And if and when you believe that, you can breathe in, breathe out, and accept this invitation of God. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. May you experience His rest through His grace today.